0: Welcome to the Geopolitics and Empire podcast once again. Today we're speaking with Surab Gupta, who is a Senior Asia-Pacific Policy Specialist at the Institute for China-America Studies in Washington. We'll be talking about the significance of the recent meeting between Xi Jinping and Narendra Modi, as well as the general balance of power in the Indo-Pacific. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Mr. Gupta. Thank you for inviting me, and you're most welcome. So on this podcast, we've often spoken of China and have neglected uh, looking at India. And we've seen how China has, effectively become the challenger of US hegemony as it has teamed up with uh, Russia the belt and road has become its highway to the rest of the world India has an interesting position, though. It's rapidly developing uh, economically and demographically. It's set to even surpass China's population in the near future. It has a good relationship with the U.S., but at the same time, uh, it's seeking to be friendly with China. Can you give us a general idea on how you see India's positioning and balance in the Indo-Pacific region, as well as its position in between the uh, U.S.-China superpower or new great game? Uh, And then we can dig deeper into some of the details.
1: Oh, well, absolutely! Uh, you know, India used to be during the Cold War period a very principled and a kind of a sanctimonious power which tended to lean with the Soviets. And after seeing that it was on the wrong side of the of the Cold War balance, it realized that it needed to have good relations with all the main power centers in the world. And considering that there had been a real weakening of U.S.-India relations during the Cold War, it was essential to get that relationship working that has by and large succeeded in in this post-Cold War phase, particularly over the last 20 years. So where India sees itself right now is trying to have the best possible relations with all the major power centers in the world. Some of them, obviously, these relations are not that easy to do because we ha- India has issues uh, by like the boundary dispute issue with China. So there are Reasons for tensions, etc. But the basic point being India is trying to have the best possible relationship at a given time with all the major power centers because it feels if it can do so, it widens the scope of its maneuverability within the international system and it gets gains from all sides involved. So India is trying to f- kind of find out that sweet spot within among the great powers. So it is the enemy of none. It is the friend to all. And it can in that way maximize its strategic autonomy in the area of foreign policy.
0: You know, that sounds very reasonable, rational and what I think any normal person would would try to do to be friendly with everyone. And uh, now recently, we had the, the talks where Xi Jinping and Narendra Modi met uh, one of the An outcome of the talks was the launch of a high-level economic and trade dialogue to address India's trade deficit with China. Now, India has refused to join the Belt and Road. Some of the reasons, perhaps, may be the U.S.-India relations or alliance, but as well as the strong uh, Pakistan-China alliance. And perhaps some of the other reasons for not joining the Belt and Road uh, are some of these opaque Chinese funding agreements uh, and perhaps the danger of an un- unevenly, unevenly open uh, India, Indian market to China and the strategic mistrust, perhaps, between Delhi and Beijing, as some analysts have called it. What are your thoughts on why India is wary of joining the Belt and Road?
1: Sure, you know the two part two two part question out here. one is the trade issue and one is the belt and road issue, which is slightly separate. Let me come very briefly to the trade issue before I get to belt and Road. You know, India runs a huge bilateral deficit with China, but much of that deficit is of its own making. It has a manufacturing sector which is simply not world class. There are pockets of excellence, but it's simply not world class, and that's why it's just not competitive. That manufacturing sector is not even is not slotted within the regional value chains, which which span China, Japan and and Southeast Asia. And what tends to happen is India is uncompetitive in a lot of manufacturing products where China just happens to be very competitive. And so when they trade, that gap just becomes bigger and bigger. And without changes in India's factor markets, land, labor, capital policies with regard to these uh, I'm afraid they're not going to be competitive. And as much as they talk with China in trying to have greater market access because of Chinese non-tariff barriers in particular sectors, so that's going to be helpful, of course, to erase and remove those. But it will fundamentally not uh, balance the balance the trade. And that's that's something India really needs to think through how it's go- how it goes about international economic trade liberalization, which is really lacking still in India. In, in a fair, to a fair degree, let's come to Belton Road. That's a separate and, and very interesting area, simply because yes, India has been one of the kind of standout parties which has not not just joined but has had harsh things to say about Belton Road. But if one also notices, uh, interestingly, India is a the number two shareholder. In the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which China is the, was the lead conceiver, conceptualizer of, so India is not opposed to alternative multilateral structures and in international economic governance. The problem it has with Belt and Road is very specific. For India, the Belt and Road are the, the two, twofold issues. One is India has, has, has had long for a long time issues with Pakistan. And a part of that Belton Road goes, as you talked about, CPEC goes through what is disputed territory in Kashmir. It goes through Pakistani Kashmir. And India's view is that bilateral or mi- multilateral aid projects should not be happening in disputed territory. It's fine if it goes to Pakistan proper and does whatever development work, but it cannot and should not go through Pakistani Kashmir because that is disputed territory. And therefore, it has raised the objection. That is the formal reason for its objection, of course. But the other reason, not as formally stated, is because one of the priority areas of Belton Road is de- building port infrastructure in South Asia, and India has always had sort of this predominance in South Asia, in Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and that is for the very first time being challenged by way of Chinese activity there which is emboldening these countries in their relations with India and India has just not adapted to having to live with the circumstance. I think it will learn to live with the circumstance so long as those port infrastructure uh, uh, projects don't are not weaponized as I mean don't become dual use civil military use and have Chinese warships come and visit those ports etc. But this has been, in India's view, a way in which China has gained influence and India has lost significant influence in South Asia. And that's why where the primary objection to Belt and Road resides is very geographically located in its own neighborhood and periphery. Frankly, what China does with Belt and Road elsewhere, India really doesn't have much of an issue with though it talks about this language of debt trap and dead diplomacy also like the U.S., but it is fundamentally uh, India's grievance is that it is an international relations tool which is used to embolden its regional neighbors against India. And India is having great difficulty swallowing that or accepting that. And that's why it's such a strong objection to Belt and Road, in principle, per se.
0: And you mentioned CPEC. I don't know if you want to comment a a little bit further on that, as well as I had a question on uh, if you want to go just a step further to look at U.S.-India relationships, uh, the U.S.-India relation. There's an analyst that I um, enjoy following. Her name is Velina Chakarova. And she has this, uh, she came up with this term, the, the dragon bear. She says that the world once again has become bipolar with the superpower competition effectively between the U.S. uh, uh, on one side and the Dragon Bear or China-Russia on the other. And it's implied that all other countries or players must then choose a side um, because they're all smaller players and they must piggyback on one of the superpowers. And perhaps some people say that Pakistan uh, is currently piggybacking on China and maybe India is piggybacking on the U.S. We know Modi recently was joined by President Trump in Texas where he spoke to a large gathering of Indians and Indian Americans uh, and Trump and Modi demonstrated a good relationship. And I've read an interesting piece recently titled India and America Collude to Disrupt the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor and we know the U.S. has their interests uh, as well in the region. So, how would you analyze the situation around CPEC uh, further, as well as the U.S.-India relationship?
1: You know, CPEC is interesting because uh, we talked already about the the Pakistan Kashmir Pakistani Kashmir dimension. So, set that aside. Uh, it gets interesting because there are two two views out here. One is, and this is emanating from very very high up in the in, in the within the foreign ministry and Indian Indian government is. At the end of the day, India really doesn't have any issue with CPEC. The more Pakistan succeeds, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And doing an an infrastructure assistance, connectivity assistance done right, done transparently and sustainably is actually a great will, will be a good thing. And India does not have objections to that. And frankly, I believe it's an enlightened view. And that is the view of the Indian establishment at the top in terms of CPEC. And in terms of how it adapts to uh, Chinese investment in Pakistan, its main issues being, as I said previously, Pakistani Kashmir and that CPEC should not be involved in creating port infrastructure activities, which can be weaponized down the line and create what India what has been termed the string of pearls uh, and and erode India's India's, uh, geopolitical strength in that in that neighborhood but there's the second dimension here too and the second dimension is that india had been kind of it had not been at all an interventionist par in pakistani in in pakistani affairs but with this modi government in the past 5 years they have reasons to believe that just as pakistan for a very long time was stirring has stirred the pot in kashmir including by sending uh, armed actors India, too, has kind of stirred the pot in Pakistani Balochistan, which also has a lot of separatist sentiment, just to kind of as payback to Pakistan. And this assumes importance because important uh, connectivity arteries go through Balochistan. And so it's not very clear that, yes, India wants Pakistan to succeed, but at the same time, it's doing this little, it is is, perhaps funding... Uh, uh, separatism and violent activity in Baluchistan and how the two kind of square up. And so it's interesting from that perspective, but I would still say the dominant narrative, if there is one on India and CPEC, is it must not be weaponized. It must not run through Pakistani Kashmir. If it does, it's Pakistan needs to do the development. No bilateral or multilateral party should be engaged. But the third element, which I talk about, we hope that India hopes Pakistan succeeds, and that if CPEC can be done uh, responsibly, sustainably, and transparently, it's not a bad thing. And that's not something which is really covered covered in the media per se, because it's always useful to kind of frame this in terms of competitor versus competitor, rather than this might actually be the case.
0: Now, you've sent me an upcoming piece that you've written for publication, which tries to tackle the question of in which direction India's security arrangement will go uh, again, this is along the same theme, uh, more towards the US uh, or more towards China or quote, forge a broad set of strategic partnerships and contrive to lend its decisive weight on the immediate regional challenge of the day while maximizing its leverage by not aligning with any particular state or group of states in the in, in, Indo-Pacific, end quote. So I think you're saying that you believe India will mix it up between both uh, the US and China, depending on the geography. So could you tell us a little bit more about this?
1: Where India goes on the Indo-Pacific will, of course, be interesting, uh, India obviously wants to have as autonomous and independent a stance as possible. In the course of doing of having that stance, it does not want to antagonize any actors. And considering that much of the there's a large maritime dimension in the Indo-Pacific, it makes obvious sense for India to kind of I won't say piggyback but nec- piggyback, I won't say piggyback, but to have very good warm ties, with uh, the u.s navy and the u.s it's insofar as its maritime imprint in in the indo-pacific again talking indo-pacific it's a very broad theater and i think what india is very focused on more is the indian ocean and bay of bengal region rather than anything which is beyond sumatra malacca and and further east so the the it's on 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 a lot of the political issues India will probably and likely see eye to eye actually with China because the principles of foreign policy in terms of non-interventionism, the economic focus, etc., are very common in uh, uh, have great overlap not just with China but basically with the ASEAN states. But at the same time, from a defense purpose, so as to prevent possibly any revisionism down the line at any point of time. India wants to tighten its defense and naval relations with the U.S. so that it at least has options. It's not going to use the U.S. on anything related to its land boundary with China or with anybody else. But it does want to have that option of having a very close relationship with the U.S. in the maritime realm, which can, who knows, be leveraged in some way, shape or form. And particularly as China begins to have a real blue water capability, we might see things like the Quad become a very soft balancing option against China in blue water areas. And I say blue water because it's important. China has, one can call it brown water, its territorial sea areas. We can call, call green water areas, which are in its economic exclusive zones, which are its near seas in which there are a lot of its disputes with Japan and with Southeast Asian countries. And then we have these blue water areas, which are the wide expanse of ocean. And India has no intention of challenging China in in brown water or green water areas. But I can see it probably tagging along with other quad countries as being as a soft balancing option in blue water areas when China becomes a becomes a maritime superpower. So it's a mixed strategy. It will depend on the issue. It will depend on defense issues, economic issues, political issues, all kept in separate baskets to some extent. But the aim is to broadly uh, pro- broadly bring its heft to the Asia Pacific uh, equilibrium, so as to may- help uh, support that equilibrium while having the means to resist any revisionism if it ever were to occur from China's end. And from that point, the U.S. is an important ally, an important partner, I would say.
0: Yeah, regarding the Quad, that's something you mentioned in your piece that um, that India has remained uh, neutral uh, regarding the South China Sea, that they haven't, uh, um, they've rejected the Quad's proposal to patrol uh, the South China Sea, and they haven't patrolled that region with uh, any of their neighbors, so they're not looking to uh, upset China there. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, more about the Xi Jinping and Modi meeting. You sent uh, a list that Uh, You sent me a list that you had uh, uh, of a bunch of issues. Uh, Some of those we've discussed already. Some include the border disputes, uh, 5G and Huawei issues over oil and gas exploration in territorially uh, disputed areas. And interesting, something I never thought about, who will succeed the Dalai Lama? So what would you say are some of the other key issues or takeaways from the recent meeting?
1: From from this particular meeting... Uh, Obviously, it was done, set in a very informal setup and maybe slightly formal also. But the important point is the two leaders had over five hours of chat, uh, discussions in a very relaxed environment by way of having the summit. They didn't want something structured with a very deep agenda agenda laid out. It It was the case last year at the Wuhan summit and this year at the second informal summit. The discussions, the main priority of discussion actually is The bilateral issues only to a certain extent, the main priority is to look at the globe as such as the multilateral system as such, which is in flux and is being challenged. Global governance is being challenged in very particular areas and how India and China can be in their own ways stabilizing factors to this multilateral conversation and to global governance per se. And so it's a useful way to kind of think in a much broader holistic perspective and try to see how they can engage and work with each other on these these issues. It could be climate change, it could be global trade and the WTO and and other issues. That having been said said, and putting that aside, uh, the, the, the two main issues which I tended to, three main issues which I tended to see come out of the summit were A. On discussion on, on trade and investment simply because of the large bilateral deficit and because the RCEP negotiations are coming really close to completion and India and China. China has India has issues with China in terms of what it can offer in those negotiations. I don't know if RCEP was specifically talked, but the trade issue was obviously talked in quite some detail. The second issue, which was talked in some in a fair amount of detail, was the boundary issue. It was listed out. Last year's summit had made had pro- had seen the leaders give very specific strategic guidance to their armies on how they should go about doing patrolling, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, on the border. This time, not that much specific guidance, but at the same time, it was definitely taken up because a new round of special negotiator. Uh, special representative negotiations on the boundary issue is impending it's coming up soon and it's a moment to again review how their 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 plans of how they're going to go forward in trying to resolve their boundary dispute and the third issue which they talked about was about terrorism which is yes about Kashmir but they talked in larger sense in terms of radicalization and when we talk radicalization I mean there issues in xinjiang there issues in Kashmir and so there's it's a broader conversation than just, kind of pointing the finger at Pakistan and saying Pakistan is a bad actor, et cetera, et cetera. But these, if I gather correctly, were the main issues which were kind of touched on in this in this in this summit. And not in terms of actually having particular deliverables come out, but in terms of an ongoing heart to heart conversation of how, how to move forward on these fronts.
0: You've written that Modi's Act East policy aims to project India as a leading power, not just a balancing power, whose geopolitical weight and preferences could shape strategic outcomes in the Indo-Pacific region and beyond. And you've also said that this month Modi is set to release India's first ever national security strategy and new military doctrine. I'm not sure if it's out yet. Could you shed more light on India's aspirations here and its primary interests?
1: The, this issue of leading power came up during the first term of modi's government the narrative in the in 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 the us to some extent had been that india and this was a narrative from the 2000s from the last decade that oh we need to have india on our side because india would be that balancing power which could kind of tip the balance in our favor which is the us's favor it was it was Uh, the U.S. and its Western allies and there's Russia and China out there and India somewhere in the middle. And if India, India is in a position to tip that balance. And that's how India had been framed by the West in terms of its positioning. The purpose of the Indians going, getting ahead of them, getting, going ahead and talking about a leading power was because they want to give the impression that, no, we are not just a balancing part, the one who kind of tips the balance. We are in ourselves, a pole within the international system, and a pole means we have it. The India has its own uh, weight of its own gravitational weight and gravitational pull, and yes, it could thereafter also be a balancing power. But that it was a pole per se in the system. That means a leading power too, which makes its own decisions and judgments, and 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 plays the game of uh, of multipolarity. So that is where that narrative of leading power has uh, came in from. That's how it's been absorbed and adapted. And, you know, the interesting thing is that at the global level, India is still a balancing power. It's still a power which, if it tips the balance, it could down the line, kind of if it if it leans this way or that way, it could tip the balance. It's not a leading power, it does not have that heft, it does not have that power of its of, of its own accord. But within the Indo-Pacific, one can literally call it a leading power in terms of China, the United States, Japan, India, these are and to some extent Russia, these are the leading powers which have their own independent I, I know japan is kind of tied to the us in a way but which have their own kind of geopolitical heft and weight and 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 make policy on that basis while a country like indonesia in the within the indo pacific is that balancing is a balancing power which if it tips this way or that way could could actually uh, affect the 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 balance of how the indo pacific equilibrium works so this is where this balance came, the idea of this balance of this leading power concept came. And I think that's the basis on which they're working. On, uh, this is, that's the essentially the basis on which India sees the Indo-Pacific and is trying is effectively making policy in the Indo-Pacific. So we'll have to see where this goes because it's, I mean, you can't, it's one thing to just say you're a leading power, but you and and India does have a quite a lot of uh, maritime power, but from an economic perspective, it's very highly non-linked to the Asian value chains and its economic heft in Asia is frankly fair, from an economic, international economic perspective, is fairly marginal. So this is a debate which will be had for quite some time, but the Indians want to show that they are and and autonomous individual leading power in Asia and make policy on that basis and must be respected on that basis.
0: Are there any other important questions that I haven't asked regarding the Indo-Pacific and India or something that, that you think about a lot that is important
1: uh, the, the one thing I would say with regard to the Indo-Pacific is, and I just briefly alluded to that, the Indo-Pacific is the Indian and the Pacific Oceans. These are two very separate theaters. And frankly, I would say for the past millennia, uh, they have remained separate theaters. And it's, I mean, one one cannot fight history in such a way and again, reconnect the two arenas and make it into one unified theater. What was the case and always was the case was ever since I would say the 10th century on is Southeast Asia became the great anthropot of of, of, of the Indo-Pacific. And and there was a Western dimension and there was an Eastern dimension to the Indo-Pacific. And I see India's role on the Eastern end of the Indo-Pacific, that means in the Pacific Ocean being a very marginal presence, frankly. It's very absorbed with its Indian Ocean ocean location as well as its West Asian, with, with the countries of, of, of West Asia. And that's why the, the issue with regard to the Indo-Pacific comes up as to how India will or might challenge China. And that's where my point is that in China's near-seas, where it has these disputes and where all the real contentions are with regard to taiwan with regard to japan with regard to the southeast asian countries all these territorial issues and more these are all issues on which does not touch upon india's interests in so far as the indo pacific is concerned because india is just concerned about as i said the indian ocean area and the blue water areas beyond china's immediate beyond china's near seas and that's why there's the, the 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 reason for confrontation between India and China also is 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 basically lacking of course poor bad poorly managed by both sides they will but but uh, butt up against each other butt heads but there's no particular reason why China and India need to even confront each other in the broad indo-pacific because a lot of their From a naval standpoint, they they don't collide. And from an economic standpoint, both of them have kind of similar overlapping objectives, which is to get prosperous, to get rich, to trade more, and to get more integrated with Southeast Asia. And so we'll see where this goes, but the US's calculations with regard to the Indo-Pacific and where India fits in, might almost certainly will not be where India sees itself in that neighborhood.
0: Yeah, that was an uh, important point you mentioned about the the history because under Obama he had the Asia or Asia Pacific pivot, which under the Trump administration morphed into the Indo Pacific, uh, and I believe uh, which has become the Pentagon's priority theater, and they actually changed their command to Indo Pacific. So it's like they're trying to unify it uh, into one. And I'm just curious on your thoughts or view of narendra modi i know you you try to give a objective uh, analysis of what's happening uh and it's interesting for me because i in a way you know i'm far removed from from india and and maybe some some of our listeners don't know so much about uh the politics there but from the some of what i've read you know we have the the left-wing indian anal- uh, analysts who really don't like modi uh, i have some indian friends who I know who are very nationalistic and can see Modi do no wrong. How would you describe Modi, his tenure, and how he might finish his second term as uh, prime minister?
1: Uh, Modi has Modi came in with a with a great deal of popularity ac- across the spectrum. You know, he he came in also with as as with with quite a lot of baggage. He had been prior he had been chief minister of a state in which atro- atrocities were committed under his watch and many people would say atrocities which he kind of he, he didn't perpetrate but he was very well aware of and didn't raise a finger to do anything and this was with regard it, it's the it's the hindu muslim divide again it goes down to riots against 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 muslims so he he did come in with that baggage but once he was elected prime minister india as a whole gave him a chance he was he was well received by the broad electorate for nationalist reasons, but also because he was seen as a person who would kind of cast away 30 or 40 years of poor economic policy by the previous Congress government. The Congress government, we have to accept, made reset its own economic policies from the early 90s onwards and and embrace the market. But at the same time, it was a halting embrace of the market, and it was always happy to do with leftist and populist policies, which were hurting India. And the f- hope was that Modi would bring that same magic he brought to bear in in the state of Gujarat at a national level and r- begin to see eight percent and nine percent growth growth rates on an annual basis. Well, that did not happen, and has not happened. And part. Do is because Mr. Modi's economic policies leave quite a lot to be desired. He's very pro-business, which is a good thing, but he's not doesn't understand and frankly doesn't have good advisors who understand how markets work and the legal frameworks that need to be created for policy frameworks that need to be created for having markets work for land, for labor, for capital, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And India has actually done fairly badly, I would say, in the last couple of years under his tenure. And this has kind of taken a a lot of the shine off Modi. And unfortunately, what seems to have happened is that Modi has instead become nationalism and sold nationalism to his audience as a means to recoup those losses which he could not, which he which he was making on the economic side. And so it's it's a mixed bag at this point of time. He is, he wants to do. He wants to be brave economically and take India to the next level in terms of its its growth rate and make it a $5 trillion economy by 2025. I don't think he has the policies to do that. And as and as he seemed to be not very successful on that front, he has been willing to kind of bait Muslims, play the communal card and just play on nationalism. And at this point of time, it's all, it all goes down very well in India. India is very national. As a as a country which has had lost its way and is finding its way back in the international system, it's and as a young country it's it's a hyper nationalist country. but hypernationalism will not make you a five and a ten trillion dollar economy at the end of the day. and whether he can take that take that take the country there remain is, is something which is not certain and particularly to what extent, nationalism, and his nationalist approach is hurting, will hurt him economically, remains to be seen. So it's hard to give a a, a, a very fair, I mean, a, a comprehensive assessment of the man. He is a very, he, he's a great communicator and a super politician. So there are, he has a lot of strong attributes going for him. But at the end of the day, he needs to deliver, and he needs to deliver fundamentally on the economic front, and it's on that front, the most important front, that he's falling short. And this might come to hurt him down the line when people will say, you know what, Congress was useless, we gave you 10 years and you couldn't do much else, and they'll just be, you know, it's, its it's its not going to be a happy ending at that point of time.
0: One of the themes on geopolitics and an empire uh, that we often uh, ask our guests relates to the rise uh, and fall and clash of empires, um, as well as this idea of the Thucydides trap. Recently, Philippine President Duterte gave a speech at the 16th Annual uh, Valdai Conference in Russia, accompanied by President Putin, President Tokayev of Kazakhstan, and King Abdullah II of Jordan. And he stated in his speech that the liberal Pax Americana order is ending. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? There's a lot of talk about U.S. Uh, Declining in its economic and and military uh, power, China rising, the threat of um, a greater conflict uh, coming about. Uh, what's your general feel of how the world uh, is, where it's going, how it's heading?
1: You're absolutely correct on those on that that front. I mean, we are in a in a in an interval period, an interregnum, where the U.S. certainly is or in in relative decline. It is. Militarily very strong, and it will stay way ahead of all the other countries from a military perspective. But it is in, in 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 it has real economic challenges, economic problems, and those problems get worse over the next fifteen years simply because the country is aging. And from that perspective, the important thing is how does U.S. politics work at home in terms of the us whether it's willing to bear the burdens and, and 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 underwrite the international system and my view is i don't think the us has the capability and perhaps now even the ability and appetite to do so it 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 understands it can't just yank itself out of the international system because many of the gains which the us gains get, obtains from the international system would be lost but the US itself, I think, is is questioning its own ability to sustain that international order which it had underwritten. And its inability to do that, and fundamentally I think that it is there will be there is an inability to do that. We'll see power gravitate to other 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 actors, both regionally and at the international level. And and I don't necessarily think it might it'll turn out to be a, a, a terrible thing it, you know, in in Asia, think about, let me just throw out an idea, which might seem kind of a little off the charts, but the US has been the underwriter of peace, prosperity and stability for the past, what is is it, uh, 75, 75 years, and probably for for 20 years more to, to a certain extent. I will argue that consolidated Chinese authority uh, central authority in in the Chinese capital, wherever that capital might have been, has been the surest guarantor of peace, prosperity, and stability in the Asia in East Asia for the last two last two millennia. So we are talking about uh, uh, either China or the United States, but both have been great guarantors of peace, prosperity, and stability. And even if we do have a kind of a shift between these two countries. Uh, a shift in position i I really can't I find it hard to believe that the the leader or the challenger is going to tear down the system just to rebuild the new the system anew. so i I, I don't think the transition needs to be that, uh, that, that, that 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 volatile or scary. but it is interesting to note what happens at the international level because Russia is again become a very engaged player. China and Russia are doing uh, are, are certainly uh, finding a meeting of minds on a variety of issues, including on military issues. Uh, the West has real, real issues to deal through uh, for 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 the next twenty five years, and it, we just have to see when when this world order that we are living in and is I would say fraying and perhaps even dying, and we are at this interregnum. What are the ideas that come out which can sustain an alternative architecture in which all the players can be all the major players can be involved and 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 offer constructive uh con- and, and play a constructive role? And it shouldn't necessarily be seen through the lens that if this system and this structure is fading, that it needs to end in a catastrophic way like it did in the 20th century before a new system arises. I think there's enough internationalism in the system and enough enough new players in the system like China and India and emerging parties emerging countries who have a vested interest in the stability of the system provide much of the growth to the system and who are going to demand that of course they are they get their place in international governance but that that evolution to that new architecture also happens in roughly peaceable ways and must not happen in a, in a, in a terrible way. So it's a moment of flux, but I don't necessarily think that one should take it that the flux is it's going to be bad flux, and that it could well turn out to be uh, we we could have a new system underwritten by the major major players in which the West has a more diminished but important role, and that the the the, the international system moves along in a good way, frankly.
0: All right. If you have any final thought and or um, any websites. Uh, Publication or book you'd like to mention, or anywhere else people can follow your work, or uh, or a recommendation of any anything for our listeners to read.
1: One of the things I would say, two, two. I'll make two small points. Actually, just today, I I I put out an article which got published in this odd newspaper called the Hindu, and essentially talking about India and China need to reconnect and speak again in trying to re recreate the the Asian maritime commons. Asian waters in the age of sail was never an arena of contestation. It did become an arena of contestation starting with the Portuguese and and the introduction of violence for state state purposes in Asia seas. Maybe India, Asia, India and China should again make have a heart to heart and a long conversation. On how we can remove that angle of contestation, so that Asia seas can be free, can be open, and doesn't need to be free and open on the basis of kind of real strong deterrence capabilities. Everybody needs to have an incentive in seeing that in 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 having those seas free and open. So it's that sort of conversation which I think people should be could 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 also pay a certain degree of attention to because. That is not the way we frame issues in the international system or in the Indo-Pacific because it's typically seen as a relative sum or a zero-sum competition when there might be arenas even as contested as the naval arena, which could be win-win cooperation, arenas of win-win cooperation. So just allude to that in one. The second point I'll make, and it's a very simple one, uh, that we are in the 21st century. Folks have called it the Asian century, not necessarily because... It's Asia will become Asia. That Asian countries will become number one, not from that perspective, but because Asia will be, be perhaps the arena, or the Indo-Pacific will be the arena where all the most important elements of of geopolitics play out. Simply because it's the biggest growth arena in in economic uh, economic region of the world. But and in this regard, I'd say i think for the first half of the 20th century it's very important that the us china relationship re- remain on an even on an even keel and the trump administration has really messed up on that front and so there are no guarantees what happens on us china relations in the first half of this of the 21st century but it's my view is the second half of the 21st century the most important bilateral relationship will be between china and india and that's why it's important in these next quarter century to get the fundamentals of that relationship correct and start to lay out that architecture which can sustain and maintain peace in the Indo-Pacific and also in that in that context assist in maintaining peace uh, globally.
0: All right, um, very interesting stuff and I, I wouldn't disagree uh, with your uh, assessment. Uh, is there any uh, website, uh, or, or did you like to mention where people can find you or follow your work?
1: Uh, let me just suggest my my own offices' website it's the Institute for China America Studies uh, the work is uh, the work is listed under my on in, in, in under my name uh, you can click on it and it'll list out all the not just the op-eds but it will list out issue primers reports and even journal papers which have put external, done done externally and people are free to uh, absolutely check it out it's it's uh what is it www.chinaus-icast.org
0: all right that'll do it for this episode of geopolitics and empire and i do encourage listeners to follow surab gupta's work uh he's also i think frequently interviewed on the english uh language uh chinese media Uh, and thank you surab for the interview You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.